Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Jeff Simmons is the leader of the Opportunities Party, the independent party that rocketed to fame in the last election and off the back of its former leader's high-profile attacks on pretty much everything. Government, the opposition, the wealthy, the tax system, the welfare system and even cats. But this time round it's Jeff at the helm and he's still on the offensive hoping to prove the value of rational politics and rational policies especially when it comes to the environment. Jeff, welcome to This Climate Business. Kia ora, Vincent. Hey, um, just looking at the uh, results of the last election, pretty impressive, 63,000 votes, in fact, to 63,261 to be precise, which was 2.4% of the party vote. That's five times as much as ACT. <laughs> yes, at that time, yeah. Which is pretty impressive. How do you think you'll go this time around? Are you going to pick a number? Oh, well, I mean, I think anything can happen in the next 10 weeks. Uh, obviously, you know, we'd like to have a bit more momentum than, than we do right now, but uh, that's the, the the nature of these extraordinary times with COVID, etc. Um, but, yeah, I mean, really anything can happen in the next 10 weeks, so game on. Is there any possibility you could do some sort of sweetheart deal with one of the parties? That You're in a position, I think, where you could... Um you could swing either way. Absolutely, we're happy to work with either major party and you know for us it's all about getting the policy and getting the ideas into into government and uh, I, you know I think we'll have a better idea of how this election is going to pan out in the next couple of weeks. Do you think the part of the electorate you represent is um, there's a bit of a challenge in it in that you, you could be a bit act, you know I remember the old act party was yeah. always about rational evidence-based Policy, yes, right? yes, yeah. You're a little bit green because yes. you put the environment ahead. You're a fierce capitalist. Yep. So, you know, you could belong to the Nats. Where do you belong? Is there a potential for being falling between the cracks? Somewhere between greens and act. I, I think that's quite welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, have no problem with that. I mean, the old political spectrum is dead as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we are still obsessed with it as a society, but it, we've seen it splinter overseas and it's only a matter of time before that happens here as well. Um, and I think particularly with MMP, most countries that have proportional representation do see that splintering in time. So from, from my perspective, um, the old um, charade of red versus blue, right versus left, pick a team kind of stuff is uh, is, is very 20th century and, and will eventually leave. I'm looking at your website and the way that you behave. It's quite a, got a youthful kind of element to it. Is there a youth vote, do you think, that could swing your way? Yeah, I mean that's definitely one of the the target votes that we have. Um, we you know we have a, a, a bunch of targets that we are going for, but particularly young renters. Absolutely, um, they they're in the gig economy. They're struggling with the you know the housing situation, uh, and of course they do feel the weight of those environmental pressures coming down the pipeline towards them. So I think you know they they really are a sweet spot for us. Yeah. Um, I was sort of really surprised at your opposition. You're quite vocal in your opposition to the Greens' wealth tax. Yeah. 
um, which uh, we will get to the environment in a minute for anyone who's very keen on talking about the environment. But wealth tax is quite important, right, because your proposition is that we can't fund uh, a, a good environmental response without a functioning economy. Yeah. And so you've attacked the wealth tax as really damaging to the economy. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it really removes any incentive to invest. And we know that, you know, there's a variety of estimates out there, but we need about a billion dollars of investment going into l reducing emissions each and every year, right out till 2050, probably 2060, to actually reach our targets. Yeah. Government can't do that alone. Business has got to do it. Why? Are, what incentive do they have to invest with the Greens wealth tax in place? There are problems with our tax system, and that's why we want to tax housing the same as other assets to, to drive investment towards productive investment. But all the Greens wealth tax is going to do is drive productive investment to Australia because that's where people will move if they have to pay that tax. It really removes any incentive to invest. There is a disparity of wealth though, would you agree with that? That the, um, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. I mean this is more than just rhetoric, it's actually evidence isn't it? That the disparity of wealth is damaging to the economy and makes it really difficult to tax a base and then do things with that taxation. Absolutely, and the driver of that in New Zealand has not been business, it has been housing. That is the number one driver of the, of the you know, divergence in wealth that you're talking about, that growing gap. Can you explain that? Uh well, we really quickly. Yeah, we have the highest taxes on on business and other investments like, like KiwiSaver in the Western world, and the lowest tax rates on housing in the Western world. So, no wonder everyone puts their money into housing. No wonder we have some of the highest house prices in the world. We need what what we need in New Zealand is just to tax housing the same as we tax other investments. We know that that when a decent amount of investments going into businesses and and KiwiSaver, that that is much better for for inequality because housing's a zero sum game you have a house it's going up in price you benefit i'm a renter i don't have a house i lose it's really as simple as that mm. um, whereas if you have a business that's going up in value and you're investing in it then you can employ me and that's great do you think that the appetite for uh, capital gains tax for instance on housing or a level playing field at least and is what you're talking about that's been tried right you know the the political appetite for that is gone well the political appetite for that you know there's, there's a million ways you can um, skin that particular cat to borrow a phrase from Gareth um, <laughs> but uh, so yes, I mean, well, the, the the proposal of the capital gains tax was flawed from the outset, and this is ultimately why it why it died. Because if you exempt the family home, it's completely pointless, right? Um, there's, there's, you know, you've got to include the family home to really have any any sort of impact. But there's a, a number of things that could be done to ensure that housing is taxed the same as other investments. For example, you could drop the tax on KiwiSaver. I mean, that's what some people are proposing, uh, and that's certainly what some European countries do. So, because young people are, are, are out of the housing market, right? I mean, they have no chance of getting in. Where's their tax-free investment? Where can they stick their money tax-free? Thank you very much. They can't unless we give them tax-free KiwiSaver. So, you know, there's, there's a variety of ways forward on this.
Let's um, let, let's move on to climate and environment, and if there's time, we'll, we'll come back to UBI because mm. I think that's pretty interesting, right? And and must be part of the solution to what you're talking about. But we will come back to that, I hope. So. Um, the front and centre of your climate policy, and first of all, congratulations on taking climate change seriously. Thank you. <laughs> um, Pleasure. Um, but front and centre is the emissions trading scheme, right? Yeah. Uh, which is which is broken, and I think everyone can agree it's broken. But just tell us why you think the emissions trading scheme is broken. Well, for a long time, it had no cap. Uh, on it, so it was a, a cap and trade scheme without a cap. Uh, it now has a, a quasi cap, although it still has a, a, a price ceiling on it. Which why does it matter? Why does a cap matter? Well, because you want to, uh, you know, we have emissions targets, and w- if the emissions trading scheme is going to help us reach those emissions targets, then we need to constrain the amount of emissions and let the price rise to whatever level it needs to be to make sure that people don't emit. That hasn't been the case because we've had a price cap. Um, that's still going to be the. We're still going to have a price cap under what uh, the the government is proposing. It just slowly steps up, which is which is good. But the big problem the emissions trading scheme still has, two of them, is that we still have a whole lot of free credits that we're giving away to the big emitters, and that's not changing anytime soon. And the second thing is that we are the only country in the world that allows un unlimited offsetting through planting of trees particularly you know my big concern is around those plantation pine forestry Uh and in New Zealand in New Zealand and if you look at the predictions of what is going to happen you know um, in the next 10 years we're not going to even bother touching fossil fuels because there's no incentive to do so. We're just going to plant pine trees. We're just going to convert sheep and beef farms into pine trees. And then in 10 years' time, we'll start to worry about our fossil fuels. I mean, what the hell? This is just a, this is a temporary offset to a permanent problem. We're just kicking the can down the road even more. So it is absolute madness. We need to, we really need to sort that incentive out. The, um alternative is a tax right i mean even the progressive republicans which i know sounds oxymoronic doesn't it but there are progressive republicans are saying actually we just need to tax this it's a pollution we tax tobacco we tax alcohol we tax bad behavior so that we can kind of you know shift people into good behavior Why, why wouldn't you just tax it well yeah i mean you could uh, quite easily and the emissions trading scheme could be turned into a into a carbon tax very simply um the you know the 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 thing with that is of course we've already made this promise to foresters that they can get the carbon units so we're going to have to somehow back out of that without uh you know you know politically speaking without upsetting a whole lot of people who are investing on the basis of this carbon price so there will have to be uh, a, a transition to any, you know, uh, tax-based system. Okay, but, but so, so you're not opposed to a tax? No, 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 no. I mean, uh, you know, the ide- the ideal with a cap and trade scheme is you is you set the price, you set the cap, and you let the market work out the price, which is effectively a tax. Um, but you know, in in lieu of that, what we really know is that people will seriously start start reducing emissions when the price reaches about sixty dollars a ton, sixty yeah. to seventy dollars a ton. Yeah. So whatever, 
I'm like, let's do whatever we need to do to get the price up to that level so that we actually start reducing fossil fuel use because that's the point of this thing. <laughs> the other um, flaw with this ETS has been the absence of the agri-sector, right? So, you know, th this is probably our biggest industry, uh, well, it is our biggest industry and our biggest emitter. Are you going to, are you recommending including agri and also without a get-out-of-jail card with free credits? The, the ag sector is different, short-term gases are different, so they don't need to go to zero, um, but they do need to be reduced. And of course nitrous, which is a long-term gas, that does need to come to zero. Um, I mean, I think the idea of having a, a separate scheme for uh, land use in general, which is what the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment is is recommending, actually makes sense. So at the moment we've got an ag scheme being set up. What we'd be saying, what Top would be saying if if we were in the next involved in the next government is, well let's get forestry into that as well. So that forestry is used to offset agriculture because that actually makes sense when you look at the science of these gases. And that leaves fossil fuels, we can't use you know, we can't use trees to offset that. We've just got to get fossil fuel use down. And that's really what the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment is saying. And, you know, there's a whole lot of complicated science behind that, but that's the general gist. So the, 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 you would include AGRI in the ETS, but you would have provisions? Well, I think you'd have a separate scheme that covers land use. So it would have, you know, you'd, you'd have a, an, an emissions trading scheme for land use which included ag and forestry and then you'd have a separate price which truly is for you know fossil fuel emissions and that could be effectively a tax. There are so many other ways into this problem aren't there um for example transport's been identified as low-hanging fruit. We've yeah I love that podcast with Paul that yeah, was that great. was a really good podcast. So um do you support a fee-based scheme you know you know what the Greens had tried to do was um you know reward people for buying EVs? Yeah so our policy is based on the idea that um New Zealanders buy second hand and what we want to see is EVs being bought by businesses as fleets and brought into the country. So we favour removing the fringe benefit tax on low emissions vehicles and that can include bicycles as well which is what happens in the UK if your business, if you can buy a bicycle through your business and you get it effectively pre-tax which is great. Um, and so that, that's kind of the approach that we favour. You jack up the emissions price and you use that money to remove the fringe benefit tax from low emissions vehicles. We'll see businesses starting to roll out EV fleets and that'll filter through to the second hand market. There's other things that hold back an EV rollout such as the infrastructure, right? And um, some But that is happening and I think the government has done a pretty good job on that, okay. on moving on that. So some people are saying, well, you need kind of systematic you know, a systems solution. So, yeah. you know, suddenly we need a massive charging network throughout the country or or we need, you know, a hydrogen uh, system so that heavy transport. Do you, do you have thoughts about kind of a, taking a systematic approach to shifting the whole transport sector? Well, I think the in terms of the low-hanging fruit, we definitely need to get rail electrified so just just note that particular uh, point I think on the heavy fuels side of things I mean again on the charging stations I think if we get 
fleets coming in with business that will provide the scale to to take care of the the EV charging station issues. Um, you'll see them having a strong incentive to, to lead on that. So you think the, that that will be the market trigger that then would drive yeah. a, a bigger change? That's right, business fleets. I mean, heavy transport is more complicated, and there is a you know there's a lot of water to go under the bridge in terms of where that goes. I think you know looking at hydrogen is is great. Uh, absolutely, we should be looking at that as a possible solution to the TY issue, uh, turning that into a into a hydrogen uh, producing uh, factory. But we should also be looking at biofuel because obviously New Zealand has a has a comparative advantage in producing biomass and. If that is going to be a potential solution for heavy transport, then we should be looking at that as well. And then these things aren't ex- exclusionary, are they? You know, uh, uh, it could be that the, the the biofuel actually fuels the creation of hydrogen. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and hydrogen becomes the the kind of the mobile fuel. Um, there are other innovations in your toolkit which I'd quite like to touch on, and, and one of them is gene editing, which um, you know that really does stand you apart from the rest of the crowd. Can yeah. you tell us about your views on gene editing? Is it the same as what is called CRISPR? Yeah, well, CRISPR is the tool. Uh, gene editing is is the uh, you know uh, way forward, if you like, and it is different Why? from. Why is it the way forward? Well, it's different from genetic modification. So we're not talking about taking DNA from one organism and putting it into another, uh, which yes, there are issues with that and there have to be strong safeguards which we have in place. Unfortunately those safeguards also apply to gene editing at the moment and there's no real reason that they should because gene editing, what we're talking about with gene editing is not introducing new material but you can just go into into the DNA and turn certain genes on and off. This is exactly what we do with with uh, you know selective breeding. That lovely Labrador you've got, Vincent, is the result of generations of selective breeding. Cows, chickens, all the same sort of thing. I'm told that um, Labradors have evolved, whether it's selective or not, but they've evolved puppy eyes for the very purpose <laughs> <laughs> of extracting food from you. It works. It really, it works. It, it really does, and Oscar is testament to it. Um, <laughs> Um, and so, so, that, so, so give gene us a bit editing. Of context about this because yeah. um, not many people know about this uh, chilling effect that the Has No yeah. Act had. What in two thousand nine? Two thousand one. It was. Two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so just give us a little bit of history on this. Yeah. So well, well the review was done in two thousand one. Has No was two thousand and three, and it just basically killed off any sort of work in, in genetic modification, uh, which like I said, you know, those safeguards are appropriate for what back then was known about gene genetic modification, taking DNA from one thing, putting it in another. So those safeguards were appropriate at the time, but the technology has moved on hugely. And so the same regulations apply to, to you know, using gene editing, which now in Australia uh, and in America has very little uh, regulation. So our our trading partners are are doing this and it's completely undetectable whether the the apple or other piece of fruit you're eating from Australia or the United States has been 
selectively bred or altered by CRISPR. If well, you know. in fact, we've made a whole industry out of it called kiwi fruit, right? That's um, right. That's uh, right. And that they don't use gene editing; they use selective breeding, which that's is right. what takes so long. Yeah. But um, just put it then in a climate change or an environment context. So, why is this relevant? for our environment policy? Well, there's huge opportunities uh, for in, in, from an environmental perspective. I mean, we have some of the best research on this sort of stuff happening in the world, but at the moment, it, as soon as it gets to trials, it's all going overseas. So, you know, um, our it, we have a really strong agricultural research sector, but they are held back by the by the current regulations in, in terms of being able to test all this stuff. So they're looking at things like um, <clears throat> grasses, which will uh, absorb more nitrogen, uh, so we get less running through into our rivers. You know the big problem uh, of of Canterbury and some other parts of the country. Um, in fact, the, the Hauraki Gulf, we had. Um, um, publisher of New Zealand Geographic um, come and talk to us about the state of the Gulf. It's, you know, it's in an appalling state. It is. uh, Partly as a result of runoff. Yeah, yeah. And the other big environmental opportunity uh, is around predator-free. So there's, there's experiments going on overseas using gene editing right now to uh, take care of mosquitoes, to reduce populations of wasps. Uh, so of course, you know, wasps would wasp control would be very useful here. But the big the big issues here would be rats, rats, possums, and stoats. And if we could use genetic tools to to control those populations, that would be um, you know hugely beneficial to the predator free effort. I'm imagining you probably would include kauri dieback. And yes, that, right? yeah, yeah, that is another area that that could be used for research to just effectively help the the Cody's natural protection that they have uh, something in nature has gotten out of whack and has kind of reduced their natural protection to this disease all of this sounds incredibly reasonable Jeff you seem like a very reasonable man uh, is this part of your problem that you do come across as reasonable you're a very affable chap you know do you need to be more upsetting to to get some traction well I mean the, yeah I can hear what you're saying you know the media is uh, is always looking for a fight um, we're trying to have the fight on the basis of ideas you know rather than attacking people um, you know the the feedback we got, of course, you know, Gareth's approach last time round certainly got media, may not have won us friends. It's hard to, it's hard to tell with this sort of stuff. But, um, I mean, certainly we are still pushing bold ideas out there and wanting to, uh, you know, ignite conversation, but not do it in a, in, a, in a personally attacking way. It's very frustrating, isn't it, that you could represent probably quite a significant, well you've demonstrated a significant portion of the population, a 2.4% of the party vote, five times as much as that. You must be looking at some sort of partnership with a a major party to get some help. Would they not turn to you as as that um, extra party to get in? Well, I mean at the moment, Labour and National both are, uh, you know, both sort of buying into this two-party system idea that we we talked about before and and that um, so they ultimately want people that are going to be allied with them 
Uh, and you know what we're saying is, well, we're prepared to work with either of you. Frankly, we don't see a great deal of difference between Labor and National, apart from the, the rhetoric around it in terms of outcomes. I mean, we've just seen with the frame, the COVID recovery frameworks that they've both released. I don't know if you saw that um, quiz on spin-off, uh, which was which was trying to get people to work out whether it was Labor or National <laughs> policy, and, and most people couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's the reality of modern politics. Uh, they're basically the same, but they have different wrapping. They have different colours. Yeah, different different colours and different branding, and that, and that's how they set themselves apart. So, you know, our point is that you know it doesn't really matter whether it's Labour or National. We're just trying to shunt them forward, not left, not right, but forward, uh, and you know to take a more progressive stance on things, get get some real change actually happening. Uh, but you know, we we are still as a nation. You know, most, as you can tell by the by the voting statistics, we're still most sucked into the belief, uh, mostly sucked into the belief that National and Labour are different and that we have to choose camps. Um, so, you know, you look at Europe, you look at how a lot of other countries operate, uh, you know, we, we believe that, that over time, you know, support for this sort of approach will, will grow. At the last election, you know, the the uh, surveys that Gareth did suggested that around about 10% of Kiwis wanted to see top in Parliament, uh, but of course people are worried about the wasted vote, so there is that barrier to get mm. over, mm. Uh, and you know, we're, we're targeting you know, both the five percent threshold, but also the seat of Ohario this time round. So you know, we're this is where you're standing, right? No, no, no. It's Jessica Hammond. Uh-huh. Uh, yep. So she was our top performing candidate in 2017. I'm standing in Rongatai, also in Wellington. I mean, we are strong in Wellington. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really taking on Paul Eagle because he's been anti cycling, and and uh, I, I just uh, you know that's a particular bugbear of mine. Right. Urban form and and uh, and public and active transport. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 standing in Rongatai, and Jessica's standing in Ahari, and uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. What's your motivation for being involved, Jeff? It's a it's a nasty business politics. It is. Uh, tell us a bit about your background. You're an economist, right? I'm an economist. Yeah, and um, you could have a nice cushy job somewhere in, oh, in a bank or a government department. Yeah, 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 and sometimes that's pretty alluring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, I view this as my charity gig. You know, I've. I've been lucky enough to have a career which uh, you know pays me pretty well to do stuff that I'm really interested in, and I've spent that, I've been lucky enough to spend that time researching the solutions to New Zealand's biggest problems and pretty much watch government after government throw those solutions in the too hard basket. So it, that gets pretty frustrating. Um, so that's that's part of the motivation, and I guess I'm viewing this as you know. The, this is what I do best. Some people are great with community gardening, and some people are great with, um, you know, activism. What I'm good at is is policy. So <laughs> this is me giving back, really. Um, and you know, uh, I'll I'll uh, I can always go back to some cushy job somewhere afterwards. <laughs> if what was the experience like with? Gareth, you know, he was such a polarizing, but as a result, such a high-profile figure. Yeah. Um, you seem to um, come out of that experience. Uh, at least your friendship seemed to 
have been broken if there was a friendship at, at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's safe to say that we were friends. I mean, it it was just um, difficult to. And don't get me wrong, like Gareth has fantastic motivations. He's a smart guy who really does care. Um, but under the under the pressure of an election campaign, you know, you 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 see what makes people tick. You see you see that you see what's going on in the subconscious. You know, uh, people are operating on autopilot. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, you know that that side of the the campaign was what caused was, was what caused problems and I mean unless you're prepared to sit down and talk about that stuff and work that through um, it becomes very difficult to, uh, to to continue to work together mm. it's you know um, does he have any involvement at all now no 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 involvement now I mean uh, he's uh, you know Garrison all or nothing kind of person he's he's either you know, fully in running things, or he doesn't want anything to do with it. And you know, um, how's the how's the party funded? Do you have we're totally we're totally funded by small donors. So we I don't know if you saw the returns from two thousand and nineteen. Oh, that's not something I particularly go out and read. No, no. Tell us about it. We had like by a factor of 10 the mo more donations than all other political parties put together in terms of actual number of donations average donation $25 and that's how we are funded effectively is is, is by the you know our supporters we have an incredible group of volunteers who do mm. all of the the mahi that is done usually paid for in other political parties um, and you know, um, we fundraise through our, our membership, so very lucky to have such a, a great group of supporters. I always give people the chance to um, tell us their, share their dream. You know what? Well, what is the what does a great New Zealand look like? And uh, you mentioned COVID before, and, and maybe COVID is a good launching pad for talking about your vision of a of New Zealand, but COVID give up, gave us, is still giving us an opportunity to reimagine, rethink. So what is a reimagined New Zealand according to top, according to Jeff Simmons? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the easy answer to that is, um, is that there's an awful lot of low hanging fruit. I mean, you know, Paul talks about transport, but there's, there's also just energy efficiency, you know. Uh, I noticed you've just had your home insulated, congratulations. We're That's sitting here in my lounge, it's covered in polka dots because we had people <laughs> blowing stuff on the walls. Yeah, the drafty old villa in Auckland. Yeah. How many how many thousands of these are there? Hundreds of thousands. And and this is exactly what we need to be doing, is, is improving our energy efficiency, um, the energy efficiency of our, of our car fleet, I mean, that was the the one side of the the um, the greens uh, you know transport idea that I really enjoyed the improving the fuel efficiency standards that's mm -hmm. that's fantastic proven overseas um, so we should definitely be doing that improving our homes improving the energy efficiency of our businesses uh, you know all of that stuff 
is proven to work overseas you know not that difficult not that difficult we're just 15 20 years behind europe on all of that stuff so there's a there's a big bunch of low-hanging fruit there that we need to we need to get on with beyond that i think if i'm to say one thing about uh, you know about the post-covid recovery i would say i would pick urban form you know we have a housing crisis we have a climate crisis and there's a win-win in how we live we have to live more densely you know do apartments and good quality terraced housing around our public and active transport networks you know uh, wellington has to fit another eighty thousand people in the next 30 years we are not going to do that by continuing to, to sprawl. And if we do do that by continuing to sprawl, we gridlock. So this whole asinine conversation that we have uh, down in Wellington about uh, you know, car parking uh, is, you know, to me, is we just have to get past because we can't have another 80,000 people who all park their cars on the side of the road as, as people do now. We, we simply do not have the space. And in 10 years, we're going to have auto self-driving cars anyway. So why are you going to need car parks? I'm going to be flying to work. <laughs> You're going to be. Yeah. You're going to get your own jetpack. Well, I hope so. Um, and how about uh, our industries? Because, you know, we do... Once again, COVID has shown us the reliance and the success of our agri-sector. Mm. Um, are we exposed on that front? How confident do you feel about the future of New Zealand based off the back of the land? Well, I think we have um, you know, huge opportunities to add value in that area. Um, and it's been talked about by government after government, but they haven't actually got any idea about how to do it. Um, we need to... well. I talked about some of the blocks in in the way of our innovation. Uh, we need to re remove those, but we also need to uh, direct our research and innovation capacity at a few sectors that can really be world class, um, and you know try to lift those up. It's it's exactly the same way we fund sport. You know, which ones would you pick? Well, I mean, this there needs to be a process to do this, but um, but if you ask me off the top of my head, based on my understanding of economics, I'd say adding value to the primary sector would be one of them. Um, digital would be another, and high um, high tech uh, niche manufacturing would be the third. So those would be my three. No tourism in there. No, no, there wouldn't be. Uh, and why would you? It's it's low value. I mean, unless you can show a portion of tourism which is really going to um, show huge growth potential and add massive value I mean at the moment tourism is, uh, is is a is a job machine that's that's about it it's not really you know adding much value to the New Zealand economy so um, <clears throat> And by all means, you know, if, if someone can come up with a strategy for high value added uh, tourism, then let's have the conversation. But at the in the past, it's all just been about more volume, more cows on the side of the Southern Alps, more tourists, uh, you know, clogging up the um, car parks, and um, and you know, more logs sitting on the on the ports. That can't continue. We all know that, but 
no one's doing anything about it. <laughs> Unless they vote for you, presumably. <laughs> Jeff uh, Simmons from Leader of the Top Party, uh, thank you for joining me in my lounge, my polka dot lounge, uh, here on a, um, on a sunny afternoon. Pleasure. It's, it's very warm now, I can test. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Cheers. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.